0: Good morning. Again, my name is Andrew. I'm part of the staff here at Crossroads, and I'm excited to be here as we wrap up this series on the kingdom of God. Throughout this series, we've been looking at how uh, having a proper understanding of God's kingdom has the power to change everything about our lives, It has the power to change how we live and how we view the world around us, how we view our work in so many other areas of our lives as well. Now, throughout this series, we've been using a definition of the kingdom of God from Jeremy Treat's book, Seek First, which is eight, simply just eight words. It says that the kingdom of God is God's reign through God's people over God's place. And the thing we see throughout scripture is that this is ultimately what each and every one of us were designed to experience. It's a place of safety and a place of relational thriving that we were created to live in. And yet, a reality for each and every person since Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God has been simply this. And a common experience that we've had in this life is that we never fully experience this feeling of home in this life. We never fully experience this feeling of home where we have that full safety and that that relational thriving that we were created for. We may catch glimpses of it, but at the same time, we face trials in our lives. At the same time, we face the brokenness that our sin has introduced to our lives in our world or the sin that other people's sin has introduced into our lives and our world. So while we catch glimpses of this hope, we never fully experience this in our lives. I mean, just think about your own experience. What comes to mind for you whenever you think about home? Is it a person or maybe a place or a thing that gives you this sense of, ah, like that's a place of safety. That's a place where I can thrive with relationships around us. Now, I know for many of you here today, maybe you think about that word home. It doesn't bring positive thoughts. It reminds you of a place that was filled with more chaos than safety. Or remind you of people who the world told you were supposed to be safe and yet they weren't in your life. For others, maybe whenever you think about that, you do think about a place or a person that was really, really safe. But that person that you had in your life isn't here with you anymore. So while you got glimpses of what it was like to have this, that person's not here and it makes it harder. Or maybe that place that you used to associate with home, it's not a place you can go to anymore. And so you don't fully experience this in this life. But regardless of what your experience is, the thing we know is that that longing for home, that longing for a place of safety, a place for relational thriving, that's a good God-given longing. And you know, yet, I think the thing that we should recognize is that it's not something that I think we should expect to fully experience in this life. We should never fully feel at home here and now because we are created for something more. We were created for something different. We were made to experience God's reign through his people in God's place. It's, a, it's something that, that is just inside of us. And yet, for some reason, because of this longing, I think many of us find ourselves constantly running after something that will feel like home. Maybe it's a person that we put our hope and our trust in. where We're like, ah, that person will be that safe person. They'll make me feel safe and secure until they let us down. Or we run after a a certain place that feels safe and secure until something happens there and it doesn't feel safe anymore. We run to a political ideology that maybe makes us feel at home in this world and yet eventually it crumbles and lets us down. While we find this tendency to keep running after these things, it never fully satisfies. It only gives us a taste of what we were created for. And so today, as we look at this idea, what I want us to do is to press into this tension that we feel. And I want us to ask this question together. How are we to live in a place that doesn't feel like home? How are we to live in a place where we never fully experience what we were created to experience? Now, this isn't a new question. It was the experience of Adam and Eve after they rebelled against God and were banished or exiled from the garden. In fact, throughout scripture, a way that people are often described is as sojourners or as exiles, and that's the concept we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, I want us to just take a minute to think about those two words, sojourner and exile. They come together for us in 1 Peter chapter two, verse eleven, and in that passage, here are just three different translations and how they translate those two words. If you look at the CSB, it says "strangers in exiles." The NIV says "foreigners in exiles," and the ESV translates that as "sojourners in exile." So that gives us maybe a little bit of a glimpse of how Peter is describing the Christians' experience in this world. But let's look a little bit deeper at those words. Standard Greek lexicon defines each of those words like this. That word for sojourners there describes one who lives in a place that is not one's home. It's pretty simple, right? Exiles refers to staying for a while in a strange or foreign place, sojourning or residing temporarily. And here we, I think we see that those two terms really do belong together. They can't really be separated. It's a, an experience that it's describing that they kind of just go together. And it's one that the people of God have experienced throughout history. In the book of Genesis, God calls Abraham out of the land that he knew as home and he goes to this land that God has promised him, but he spends his life as a sojourner, one traveling in a place that was not his home. And we see in Genesis chapter 23, after Sarah dies, Abraham goes to some people to go and buy some land and he describes himself as a resident alien or as a sojourner looking for a place to bury his wife. It's the experience of the people of Israel as they are led out of slavery in Egypt, as they are sojourning or even just wandering through the desert, a place where they don't have a home and yet they find themselves living. It's even sort of the experience of the nation of Israel as they finally make it to the promised land. And yet they don't do what God told them to do whenever they get there. And they continue to turn away from God. And so while they're in this place that God has promised them, they never fully experience this feeling of safety and security because they didn't listen to God's instruction. And that ultimately led to them continuing to turn away from God and the kingdom of Israel rumbling, and God actually sending them into exile. And so they found themselves living in the land of Babylon as exiles, people living in a land that was not their home. I mean, we can even think about Palm Sunday, which we're celebrating today. Palm Sunday was the day that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem as king. He came to Jerusalem, the place where the throne was for the king of Israel. And he came riding in to show, hey, I am the coming king, the one coming to rescue you. And yet, whenever Jesus came to this place that should have been home, he was ultimately rejected. He was ultimately put on a cross. The place that was supposed to be a home was not experienced as It's the experience of the early church. We see at the very beginning of 1 Peter, Paul writes, or Peter writes that he's writing to these people who are chosen exiles. So people who are chosen by God and yet living in a place that is not home. We've already seen that he goes on in chapter 2 verse 11 to call them sojourners and exiles as he calls them to live faithful to God in a world where that just seems extremely challenging. This experience of sojourners and exiles was the experience of the early church as it spread across the Roman Empire. It was the experience of the church as it spread across the continent of Africa, as it spread across Europe. And right now it's the experience of the church as it's exploding throughout the global South. This experience of living as people who don't quite feel like they have a place in the world has been a common experience for Christians throughout history for many of us, I think our experience as churches of church has likely been one where, where the church did seem to have a home in our society here in the United States. I mean, there have been times when being a Christian in the U.S. did come with certain benefits culturally. It was just something that everyone else embraced and accepted. And so it was something that was pretty popular. However, that's quickly becoming a thing of the past, right? And it's likely to continue to be the case moving forward that it the church has continued to being moved more and more to the margins. It may be that, that our culture becomes increasingly hostile towards Christianity and the, the belief system that we have. I mean, it's no secret that our world is becoming increasingly polarized, right? We're becoming polarized around even what it means to care for the poor and how we do that well. We're becoming polarized around what it means to seek justice. We're polarized around what it means for marriage. The, the, the idea that God's design for marriage is to be between one man, one woman inside a covenant, a lifelong commitment, is something that is becoming increasingly polarized. The thought that, that, that life begins at conception is something that is going to continue to become more and more unpopular. So the question is how do we live faithfully in a world? It doesn't seem like home. In a world where maybe it feels like we've been pressed to the margins. I think it's important for us to recognize that the church most often throughout history has thrived most when it's been on the margins. You see, because the good news of the kingdom of God is about who our king is and what he is doing. And the fact is that if we are still serving that king, we don't have to be afraid. We can continue to press forward. We shouldn't be afraid whenever we see things in our world going on. But instead, we should say, okay, I know my king is still on the throne and I know I can keep moving forward. The experience of sojourners and exiles is not something new for the church. In his book, Seek First, when Jeremy Treat talks about this idea of being sojourners in exiles, he kind of defines this idea of a sojourner as a people who have a mission, but not a home. So again, I think we must ask the question, how are we to live in a place that isn't home? In a place that doesn't feel like home? Thankfully, I don't think that God leaves us directionless here. You see the nation of Israel and whenever they had turned away from God God had already warned them in Deuteronomy 29 and verse and uh, Deuteronomy chapters 29 and 30 that if they continued to turn away from him that they would ultimately be carried off into exile And so the nation of God, or nation of Israel, the people of God turn away from him again and again. They find themselves carried off into exile. They find the kingdom crumbling and they find themselves in a place where they're forced to ask that same question that we're asking today. How are we to live in a place that doesn't feel like home? So God sends this prophet Jeremiah and he goes to the people and he says, hey, I know that you're being carried off into exile. God wants you to know that this exile is gonna last for 70 years. But then there's another guy who comes along, a guy named Hananiah, and he comes along and he says, hey, don't worry. Jeremiah has no idea what he's talking about. It's not going to be 70 years in exile. It's only going to be two years. Now, that's a big difference, right? 70 years of being carried off into exile versus two years changes how you think about those things. If it's 70 years, you need to think about how it is that you're gonna instruct your family and your people to interact with the society around you because you know that you're not gonna make it back home to the land where you lived. But if it's only two years, that's a pretty big disruption, but it means maybe you can just kind of hang out and just maybe go isolate yourself, do whatever you need to do to make it through two years, But, but it's not very long. But God comes back to the people and says, It really is 70 years. It's not just two years. You're going to be in exile for 70 years, which meant that the people receiving this letter would never see Jerusalem again. So God writes this letter through Jeremiah to the people and gives them instructions on how they are to live. So how are they to live? Are they to revolt against these Babylonians? After all, these Babylonians came in and carried them off to this foreign land. How should they respond to the Babylonians? Are they to isolate from them to make sure that they don't really have much crossover? Are they to just assimilate into the nation of Babylon so so that they just become like everyone else around them? What would God have them do? God gives them instructions if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, where God kind talks to them about what it looks like. The first three verses say, hey, here is this letter that God is sending to the exiles. And here is what he writes. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Now remember, this letter was written 2,600 years ago to people that were carried off into exile in a very specific situation. So as we look at this, what we want to do is look at what it meant for them. But I think we also need to look at how this might impact us 2,600 years later. What might this say to you and me as we are living here now, whether your home is in Evansville or in Newburgh or Henderson or Boonville or Mount Vernon, wherever home is, what would God say about how we should live in a place that doesn't feel like home? I think the first thing we see in this passage is that we are called to be a people who are present. God calls his people to press in rather than withdraw from the world around them. He says, hey, build houses and settle down there, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Living in a place that didn't feel like home was no excuse for the people of God to withdraw from the world around them. Instead, they were to invest there. And yet they weren't to find their home there. And now in this place, even though it wasn't their home, they were supposed to make themselves residents of that place. So they would have a vested interest in what was happening in the city where God had taken them. And I think we are called to do the same thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Which means you can't look at anything in this world to be your place of safety and security outside of God and his kingdom. You can't look to the United States government to be the place that gives you this ultimate sense of hope and security. You can't look to anyone else in your life as this person to give you the ultimate sense of safety and security or anything in your life. You can only find this by looking to the true king and his kingdom. And yet you need to recognize that your citizenship is here. And the people of God are citizens of God's kingdom. And so that changes how we live here. We are to be the best residents of the place where God has placed us out of anyone else in the world because we know who our true king is. Here is a strong call to faithfulness even in a place that doesn't feel like home. Is there a space in your life right now that feels like maybe God couldn't possibly be at work where God couldn't possibly be present? Is it what happens whenever you think about our country and you look around at what's going on? And you think God couldn't possibly be present here. Maybe you look around your workplace and you think God couldn't possibly be present here. You look around your school and you think God couldn't possibly be present here. You maybe even think about your family or your home and you think God couldn't possibly be present here. Here in this letter, we see these people that are written to that feel like there is no way that God could possibly be present. We've just been carried off into exile by our enemies. How could God be here? And yet God says, hey, I'm here. Not only that, but he calls his people to be present God is present and he chooses to give our world a taste of his kingdom through his people being present. So check this out. If you are in a place and you are part of the people of God, God desires to give those around you a taste of his kingdom, whether it's in your school or it's in your workplace or it's in your family or wherever God has you, God has put you there and he desires you to be present. He desires you to be there on purpose. That's not the only instruction we see here. We also see that the people of God are to be a people who multiply. The call to multiply is something that's present throughout scripture. Here in this passage, we see as he tells them, hey, go ahead, have your children, get married, have them have children, continue to multiply. It's something that was part of God's command in Genesis chapter one to Adam and Eve. He tells them, hey, be fruitful and multiply. After Adam and Eve turn away from God and sin spreads across the world, God sends the flood. But then in Genesis chapter 9, after Noah and his family gets off the ark, he tells them again, be fruitful and multiply. The people, after they come out of uh, slavery in the beginning of Exodus, one of the things that's commented on is how during that time, God multiplied them into a great nation, which was a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, you see this idea of them multiplying as something spread throughout scripture. And here, even in this foreign land, God again tells them, be fruitful and multiply. For them, this meant bearing children, having kids and doing all of this wonderful things. And yet for us today, this still applies, but it's not just about having children. The call for the church to multiply is a call to what's called disciple making. Disciple making, as I understand, is made up of two parts. It's made up of both evangelism and discipleship. Both of those things are inseparable. Sometimes in the church, we like to try to pick one of the two or maybe become a church that emphasizes in one of the two. But God calls us to be a people who care about disciple making, which is both evangelism and discipleship. What do those two things mean? Evangelism is introduction to the gospel. It means introduction to the good news of who God is, what he's done and what he's doing. That conversation that we have with people begins that process of disciple making as we start to share about who God is, what he's done, and what he desires to do in our world. And then discipleship is growth in the gospel. It's growth deeper into the good news of who God is and what he's done. And disciple making is the mission that God has given his people to be people who carry the gospel everywhere we go. And we are a people who multiply whenever we take that call to carry the gospel seriously. And we take that call seriously to share the good news with people who may be be hearing it for the first time. We take that call seriously whenever we seek to help others and even ourselves grow deeper into the gospel. We multiply as we are a people who carry the gospel wherever we go. Now there's another important call here for us as we seek to see what it looks like to live in a place that doesn't feel like home. And it says we're called to be a people pursuing peace. Did you notice there in verse seven, how he says to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. The peace and prosperity is just one Hebrew word that's translated there. It's the word shalom, which is the word for peace. And we've talked about this before. It's a word that conveys this idea of wholeness. It's the kind of prospering that God desires for all of his people, for all of creation. It's what God created us for. And here we see that the people of Israel are to work for the good, for the shalom, for the wholeness of those around them, even their enemies. Let's not forget that these are the people who carried them off into exiles and they're supposed to seek their good and their welfare. And don't forget that your work contributes to this. We've talked about this, but we need to talk about it more and more. Your work in the medical field is part of the wholeness that God desires to bring and the healing that God desires to bring into the world. It's a taste of the kingdom breaking in. Your work in the business industry can be a work that brings about the wholeness and the stability in our community that God desires to see and impacts not just you, but also other individuals in our community. Your work as a mechanic or a plumber can be a work that shows the wholeness and the provision that God offers us in and of himself. Your work as a car salesman is offering some uh, reliable transportation for people who need it. Your your work in the justice system brings about the wholeness and the picture of justice that God desires to bring in this world. Your work in the food industry brings both nutrition and just the goodness of a cupcake, right? Right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. God's gift of food is good. And we get to give people a taste of that. Your work matters and it's a taste of God's kingdom coming. It's a taste of God's reign coming through God's people over God's place. And your work's not just about you and your family. It's about the world around us. It's about giving our world a picture of what happens when God reigns through his people over his place. Now, the final point I just want to dive in on here is related to this same idea of seeking the peace of the city. But I think we need to just give it some extended attention on its own. And this is fourth piece that I think we are called to. And it's that we're called to be a people of prayer. Notice his call to prayer there at the end of verse 7. It says, pray to the Lord for it, for the city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Praying for our city and our nation is natural for some, but maybe it's a foreign idea for others. But this has been part of God's call for his people, even back throughout history. It's something that we see him call for the people for right here in Jeremiah. It's something we see Daniel do throughout the book of Daniel as Daniel prays. Here we see this idea of even praying for our enemies. It's a call that God gives us to hold high and actually pray for our nation. Christopher Wright makes several notes about the assumptions that are made whenever Jeremiah calls the people to pray here. Here's what he notes. He says the, the assumption here is that God could hear and answer prayer anywhere on earth. God wasn't limited to hearing prayers that were happening in Jerusalem or for Jerusalem at the temple or around there. God could and would hear their prayer anywhere that God would hear prayer on behalf of those who were not his people. This would have been a shocking idea for the people of Israel. And yet it's something we see happen with Jonah as well as we see God's heart for the nations. Another assumption is that God could and would act for the blessing and welfare of the Babylonians if the Israelites would pray for them. And finally, that even in captivity, God's people could exercise a ministry that moves the muscles of God's providence in the world. We see that God is a God who hears. God is a God who cares for all people. God is a God who invites his people to pray. God is a God who can and will continue to move even when our circumstances around us, what's going on in the world or in our nation or in our city, even when it screams, God couldn't possibly be at work. Right here we see that that's not true. God is a God who moves and moves powerfully. Israel is in Babylon, so I'm sure that the idea of praying for a return to Israel was perfectly natural for them. And yet that's not what God calls them to pray for here, is it? Rather than praying for the return, he says, pray for the welfare of the place where you are. Pray even for your enemies. Seek the good of your enemies. It's as if God is saying to them, hey, this is not your home, and it doesn't feel like your home, but live as if it is your home. Pray for this place to thrive as if it were your home. Prayer is a God-ordained means of seeing his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And as citizens of God's kingdom, we are to pray for the places where we live as exiles. We are to invest in the residents or invest in the cities where we're at as as people with a vested interest in what happens. Christopher Wright makes another important point here about the the powerful um, way that prayer is exhibited in this passage. He says that prayer is a powerful way to bring the blessing of God, the presence of God, and the power of God into the public arena. The people of God are to be a people of prayer in a place that does not feel like home. (laughs) Now God goes on to speak to his people through Jeremiah here to again reiterate, hey, I know you wish it was only two years, but it's going to actually be 70 years. And he goes on to write to them to say, hey, this doesn't mean that I've abandoned you though. Look at verses 10 and 11. It says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. Now that is such a powerful verse. And it is a verse that is like a life verse for so many. And I think it's good to cling to that verse, but it's important for us to remember the context here. This isn't like just a feel good kind of verse. We need to remember that this was written to a people where God is saying, Hey, I know you'd rather have two years of, of exile, but the reality is you're never going to see Jerusalem again. You're never going to see home again. But then what's he saying? But I know the plans I have for you. I know it doesn't feel like home. I know it's not what you want, but I'm a faithful God. So this promise here isn't just like a feel good, things will get better kind of verse, but it's a verse that is saying, hey, sometimes things are really hard. Sometimes it feels like things just are spinning out of control. But what you can cling to in times like that is that I am a God who is faithful. And I still have your best interest in mind, even when it doesn't feel like it. Even when it feels like things are out of control. Now, I love how it goes on to expand on this idea of being a people of prayer. If we look at verses 12 through 14, it says, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Remember, these people had just been banished or exiled from the place where they thought that maybe God was confined to. they had been banished from the place in Jerusalem where the temple was. And yet God says, I'm still moving. I'm still here I haven't abandoned you. I'm still pursuing you. I'm not slamming the door shut. Instead, I'm calling you back to myself in the midst of this. Here we see that experiencing life as an exile was not outside of God's plan for his people. Instead, it was something that he desired to use to draw them back to him. And as sojourners in exiles today, I think sometimes it can be a discouraging experience as we don't feel like we're at home. And yet we must recognize that our home is found in God and in his kingdom. And he invites us to pursue him and as we pursue him and as we pursue his kingdom coming, we get to experience a taste of what home is like. The place where God's reign is experienced through God's people over his place. So again, we need to ask this question. How are we to live in a place that doesn't feel like home? We are called to be a people who are present, to be a people who multiply, a people who pursue peace and a people of prayer. But what does this look like? I think the first thing that we can do is we can stop trying to find our home and our comfort in this world. We can stop looking at the world around us as the thing to satisfy us or the people around us as the thing to satisfy us. If you've never made the decision to surrender to Jesus as king, this is a great opportunity to do that. To say, okay, I want in on this kingdom thing. I want in on this God's presence thing. I want a taste of God's reign for his people in his place. First thing we can do is surrender to him or maybe reaffirm our surrender to him that we trust that he is moving. A second thing we can do is actually live on mission. We can remember that even when our circumstances feel like things are just spiraling out of control, that we still know the king who is on the throne. So we don't have to withdraw. We don't have to isolate. We don't have to just blend in with the rest of the world. We can go forward boldly with the mission that God has called us to. Trusting that he is going with us. And finally, I think we can live as a people who are homesick, who desire to see more and more of God, who call out to him as if he actually invited us like he really did right there to pursue and seek more of him. And when we do that, we don't have to look at the world around us with despair. because We know it's not our home. We know that he's invited us into something, that he's ushering in his kingdom now. And that even whenever our world shouts, hey, just, just look around, you'll find somewhere to be comfortable. We don't have to settle. We <laughs> can trust that God is bringing his kingdom and not settle for anything less. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this incredible letter. God, for this reminder for us today that you are a God who doesn't abandon your people. You are a God who's still at work even now. God, would you help us to be a people who trust that? A people who seek to see you move. God, we thank you for the reminders that we get. But God, right now, we call out to you on behalf of our country. God, we want to see your blessing come. God, we want to see your way thrive in the world around us. Would you help us be a people who do that? God, we pray for our city. Would our city be a place where people get to see glimpse after glimpse of your kingdom and to get to come into your kingdom? God, we want to see more of that. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.